0: Today's lesson is God the Merciful King. We find this in 1 Kings chapter 9 and 11, following up with Titus chapter 3. When Solomon finished building the temple of the Lord in his royal palace, he must have patted himself on the back. God then appeared to him and explained what would happen if he followed God like his father David did? And what would happen if he didn't? Solomon decided not to listen to the Lord's warning. And in not listening, he failed miserably in the eyes of the Lord. So judgment was coming. Solomon was supposed to be the wisest man in the world. Yet, one misstep after another led to an led to even more missteps in his life these mistakes threatened the pathway of god's plan but god's mercy intervened and he kept his promise to king david and ultimately the true king was sent to us through god's son jesus christ our savior the first point in this lesson is that punishment is promised to all who disobey the Lord. We're going to find this in 1 Kings chapter 9 verses 4 through 9. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked with a heart of integrity and in what is right, do everything I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised your father David, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. If you or your sons, turn away from following me and do not keep my commands, my statutes that I have set before you. And if you go and serve other gods and bow in worship to them, I will cut off Israel from the land I gave them, and I will reject the temple. I have sanctified for my name. Israel will become an object of scorn and ridicule among all peoples. Through this temple, Though this temple is now exalted, everyone who passes by will be appalled and will scoff. They will say, why did the Lord do this to this land and this temple? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of the land of Egypt. They held on to other gods and bowed in worship to them and served them. Because of this, the Lord brought all this ruin on them. Following the dedication of the temple, the Lord visited Solomon for a second time in a vision. God responded to all that Solomon had done and sounded a warning at the same time for the future course of Solomon as well as his descendants. In this passage, God reinforces the conditions that Solomon had to live under to continue to enjoy his covenant blessings. God encouraged Solomon to follow his father's example. King David shepherded Israel with a pure heart. He was invested heart and soul in the role in the people and also in his God. Solomon's need to fully obey God's law and ordinance, he, he really needed this. He was called to be a man who wholly dedicated to the Lord in all things. This promise that God reminded Solomon about was not new. It was a restatement of the Lord's covenant promise to David. You will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. God then began to lay out the consequences for disobedience. And the implications here expanded far beyond the royal family. In fact, to the entire nation and the temple itself. God warned Solomon by saying, if, but really the specific actions identified give us more of a sense of, when is this going to happen? Solomon would indeed go and serve other gods and how? And bow and worship to them. The consequences, as we know, would be disastrous. Not just to the royal house, but to the entire nation of Israel, which would split in two. Yet here God spelled out an even greater consequence to come. The Lord would cut off his people from the promised land. Being cut off was used elsewhere to speak of casting out a sinner from the covenant community of Israel. God also would remove his presence from the temple and the people. Instead of the temple being exalted, it would be desolate and in ruins, and people who remembered the temple's former majesty would be appalled. With God's abandonment of Israel and the temple, the nation would become an object of scorn and ridicule. Ultimately, the nations of the earth would conclude not that Israel's God was weak or incompetent, but that Israel had abandoned the Lord their God in favor of other gods, and so they have reaped his punishment. Now, it's important to note how God's promises and warnings here to the king would would impact the people. If the king disobeyed, the people would suffer the consequences. No doubt this involved a measure of regal influence. But through his covenant with David, the Lord had inextricably linked the Davidic king with the nation. As the king went, so went the people, to prosperity or to punishment. Well... As we know, Solomon did not heed God's warnings, and often, neither do we. Punishment would come upon him and the nation for their disobedience. But we know with God that that's not the end of the story. So the second point in this lesson is mercy is extended to all who return to the Lord. We find this in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 30-39. to 39. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he had on, tore it into twelve pieces, and said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am about to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I will give you ten tribes, but one tribe will remain his for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem the city I chose out of all the tribes of Israel. For they have abandoned me. They have bowed down to Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, to Chemish, the god of Moab, and to Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. They have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my sight and to carry out my statutes and my judgments, as his father David did. However, I will not take the whole kingdom from him, but will let him be the ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose and and who kept my commands and my statutes. I will take ten tribes of the kingdom from his son and give them to you. I will give one tribe to his son so that my servant David will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city I chose for myself to put my name there. I will appoint you, and you will reign as king over all you want, and you will be king over Israel. After that, if you obey all I command you, walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, in order to keep my statutes and my commands, as my servant David did, I will be with you. I will build you a lasting dynasty, just as I built for David, and I will give you Israel. I will humble David's descendants because of their unfaithfulness, but not forever. In the midst of Solomon's departure from God and rebellion against God's law, the Lord acted to carry out his discipline against Solomon. In 1 Kings 11 verses 26 to 39, the human agents whom God would use to carry out his justice are brought to center stage. In verse 26, he introduces us to a man we discussed briefly in the previous lesson, Jeroboam, Solomon's labor foreman for his building projects. He was noted to be a capable man whom Solomon had his eye on because he was diligent in his work. The other key character here is Ahijah, who was a prophet of the Lord from Shiloh. These two met in an open field outside of Jerusalem presumably at the initiative of the prophet. Ahijah carried out a prophetic illustration in a very dramatic fashion. Ahijah seized his own new cloak that was to be the symbol of God's judgment in action. He then tore this cloak into twelve pieces, one representing each tribe of Israel. Ahijah instructed Jeroboam to take ten of the pieces for himself as they represented what God was doing and what he was going to do to the nation. The ten pieces represented the ten northern tribes of Israel. God's judgment against Solomon was because he and Israel with him had abandoned the Lord to worship the false gods of the other nations. We see God's severe justice declared against Solomon. Solomon. But we also see a sweet mercy toward him at the same time. Unlike David's ascension over Saul, in which he would receive the entire kingdom, Jeroboam would have to settle for ten tribes. Solomon and his line would retain one tribe of the nation as their, their realm to rule. God's mercy was bound up in his faithfulness in keeping the covenant that he made to David and as well as honoring the city of Jerusalem, where he put his temple and his name. David's son would not lose the entire kingdom, nor would he see it split in his lifetime. That distinction would fall to Solomon's son. God showed mercy to Solomon, so my servant David will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. David himself was described as the lamp of Israel. And the promise here reiterated the unconditional aspect of God's covenant with David. His throne would be established forever. The culmination of this promise is in Jesus, the light of the world. God's mercy on Solomon, on David, and to all people is fulfilled in Christ. After the Lord presented to Jeroboam a conditional covenant, Parallel to the unconditional one made with David, we read of one last measure of mercy upon David's house. The Lord would discipline the descendants of David for their sins and failures as kings, and would and this is going to lead to the division of Israel and eventually exile from the promised land. But not forever. The hope of restoration, the hope, of a forever king is embedded throughout this story. Our merciful God shows his mercy toward us ultimately in Christ's work of salvation for us. The third point in this lesson is that salvation is provided to all who fall on the Lord. That's it's going to be found in Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7. Believing that salvation in Christ is the ultimate display of God's mercy, we now turn to one of the most theologically dense passages in the entire Bible, in the book of Titus, beginning with verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. In this New Testament letter, Paul was teaching Titus, a young protege, what to teach the church in Crete regarding both doctrine and faithful living. He then reminded Titus of humanity's shared sinful history and corruption for these two reasons. First, he wanted to show how the behavior of believers should be different. And then second, he also wanted to set up why the behavior of believers should be different. Titus chapter 3 verse 4 provides the initial reason believers should be distinct from the horrors of verse 3 as it extracts us from the declaration of bad news into the majesty of the good news. Once we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, according to verse 3. Yet something has changed us. This comes from the inbreaking nature of God himself. Paul noted that God's attributes of kindness and his love appeared as shorthanded, as a shorthanded way of speaking of the incarnation of Jesus. This is the second appearance text in Titus, the first being in chapter 2, verses 11-14. through 14. So we have the virtues of God physically manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. These virtues also describe the heart of God. God is wrathful against sin and will judge iniquity. Yet God's disposition toward His image bearers is primarily kind and loving. So something has changed drastically in us, as believers, and it's involved. And it really involves the appearance of Jesus. But why are we different? Why are we no longer enslaved to our sin? It's because Jesus saved us. And the Lord Jesus believers are new creations. We are free from the sin and death. Then it describes how God saves us. Not by works of righteousness that we might have done. Explicit throughout scripture is the reality that human effort And good works are not meritorious for salvation. We are saved by grace according to God's mercy. Salvation is the result of God's merciful disposition toward us in our despair and enslavement to sin. God is anxiously waiting for us to reach out to him so that he can share his salvation with each of us. This occurs through the cleansing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is God's activity that saves. We contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation. The heart of a sinner is made new and clean by the work of God through the Holy Spirit, who is also a gift of God the Father through Jesus Christ our Savior. Our salvation from our sin comes from the love and mercy of God. And it really results in having been justified. This phrase describes the believer being declared righteous by God and free of all of our sin. Again, Paul stated this action happens by God's grace, not by anything that we have done. It is purely an act of God toward undeserving sinners who come to him through Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Paul concluded by revealing that as justified or saved people to whom God has shown mercy, we become heirs of God to eternal life. This is the language of adoption. In the Roman world, adoption was the means by which status and upward mobility were secured. Usually nobles would find worthy and find it worthy and advantageous to find a progeny, to adopt, to secure their legacy and wealth. God saves and makes heirs of those who do not deserve it and are not able to bring any wealth or upward mobility to his glory. From start to finish, God's character is revealed to us as being merciful and gracious to undeserving sinners who come to him for rescue. I want to close this lesson today with a voice from the church it's um, Charles Simeon who lived from 1759 to 1836 and he said let none despair on account of the greatness of their sins or of the judgments of God which are already inflicted on them God will suffer none to seek his face in vain Let everyone then bewail the plague of his own heart and offer up believing prayers. Well, let's close this lesson in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you today for this, your gracious mercy and your gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to save each one of us from our sin. Lord, I pray for anyone listening to this lesson that does not know your Son, Jesus Christ, that they, their heart, that you would send the Holy Spirit to minister to them, Lord, and to open their hearts and minds so that they can clearly understand their need for this salvation that Jesus has for them. Also, Lord, I pray for those that are sick and hurting today, that you would be with them restore them and raise them up and lord guide and direct everyone who listens to this lesson and and open our minds and hearts to the holy spirit that we would know exactly who we need to share what you have done for us with lord i pray that you would just be with us and guide us and bring us your prosperous um, life through jesus christ For it's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.